Welcome to the Dr. Mudgill Podcast. This, for me, is a really special one. Uh, I'm blessed to have Otiel Burbridge here, and he's just, I mean, an, an amazing musician, of course, everyone knows that, but also an amazing human who just exudes a real positive vibe, and I'm so excited to hear your story, Otiel, and for you to share your journey with my audience, man. So, you know, thank you so much for spending your morning with me, man. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. So... I guess, you know, really like how we were described, like I was telling you before we started recording, um, you know, the, the, this podcast for me is all about sharing amazing journeys. And, you know, yours is as, ma- as amazing as anyone uh, that I know. And, you know, a lot of what I want to talk about is how much work goes, how much work was put in before all these great things that you've done in your life were achieved. And a lot of people don't see that. They see O'Teal now. And while wow, this guy's playing with every musician, like he's playing with Dead and Company, he's playing, he's played with everybody. Everyone's calling you and saying, hey, O'Teal, can you sit in on this session? Can you play with me here? Can you play with me there? Um, but, you know, there's probably 20 years of just pure grind behind all of that uh, before, like, you were a hugely sought after bass player. Probably, I would say, the most sought after bass player these days. Well, uh, I don't know if I'm the most sought after. <laughs> but... well, let's say one of the most. Um, so, you know, the journey really for me starts back at the beginning, man. I know you were born in the Bronx, but you really grew up in in the D.C. area. And oh, go ahead, Ben. Sorry. No, actually, I was born in D.C. My brother was born. My older brother, Kofi, was born in New York. And my parents are from the Bronx. And then after right after he was born they moved to uh washington dc and then oh. all the rest of the kids were born there so that is kind of my start southeast washington anacostia washington was uh in the old days and when i say old days i mean before i got there in 1964 uh it was a pretty nice white neighborhood that everybody left you know and it became a black neighborhood and poor and every um there was a few like really old white people that stayed like the wildensteiners who were our neighbors and there were three sweet old ladies you know and uh nobody messed with them either i guess they had just been there for so long and uh but it it changed and uh by the time i left uh, i remember being uh on the porch with my mom i think i'd come home i was 20 or 21 come home from Virginia Beach where I had like a beach gig and I heard this automatic gunfire and I heard and I was like you know sometimes you yourself you wonder is it firecrackers or whatever but firecrackers don't sound like that I was like is that what it sounds like mom and she's like yeah I was like are you kidding me and then she said they started bringing mash units to DC General Hospital to train them there and I was just like well and they moved soon after that and everybody's now in charlotte north carolina where my youngest sister went first they kind of followed her and her kids down there so dc was pretty rough when i was coming up there and um you know my parents were throwing everything at us just to keep us off the streets so we were doing plays and dance and music and visual arts and everything sports and what you know just everything they threw everything at the wall and i do that with my kids now and uh you know all the art stuff really kind of took um my youngest sister ended up in criminal justice she went to john jay college of criminal justice in uh new york city 
but everybody was good at music, you know, and that kind of in different arts. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be like my older brother, Kofi, who they discovered he had perfect pitch when he was seven. So I was just trying to keep up with him. And I think I got really good because I thought he was normal. He was the only thing I had to measure against. And uh, he was really, really exceptional. You know, he passed away uh, recently, but um, it really helped me because that's that's what I, I was always just trying to play catch up to him, you know. So he was one of my biggest musical teachers, and I had music teachers since I was five years old on drums. We all play piano. We all play violin, the old Suzuki method mm-hmm. violin. And then uh, I played bass clarinet and a couple other things. I got really into dance, and that's what I wanted to do for a career. And then I got Osgood Slatters and couldn't do that and got really depressed and picked up Kofi's bass guitar. <laughs> that's how it was. So were parents like, very musical? Like, you know, I know there's a lot of music in your household. I know your dad was a huge jazz fan from what I've read, but did they play music, both of them? My dad played flute, but not nearly. It's like my brother could not play him by the time he was eight, you know. Yeah. And uh, he he really he worshipped musicians really. Like jazz and music was his religion, and he. Uh, but he didn't feel like he was good enough to do it. Like he didn't have confidence to take the chance on his career. And he really wanted a family, so he chose family over it. So when they discovered Kofi had perfect pitch, he was like, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? So, But he was the only one that they let like go off to music school. Uh, you know, so I was just like, you know, I always wanted to play in his band, and that was my whole dream. Like right. a career in music, I wasn't even thinking about any of that. I just wanted Kofi to ask me to play in his band. And, you know, because I never knew anyone personally that was like a really successful musician. Like, you know, they felt they were taking a really big chance on Kofi. And because they didn't, you know, it's just we didn't know, like, like my friends are really successful. I know a lot of successful musicians. Nigel will grow up knowing tons of really successful musicians. Like there's no fear and i don't even know if he wants to do it or not but like it will be something that he always sees we didn't have that you know so right. it's a big risk for them but you're talking about your your brother um i'm so sorry for your loss man and i know you guys were really really tight um you know i just from things that i've read with about kofi is he was obviously you know he played multiple instruments and was you know amazing at all of them but a lot of people would say, and this was sort of a universal theme, was, you know, Kofi was always the best person in the band, like the most talented musician in the band, you know? And I get that, like having an older brother who was so talented. And, you know, I, I read in another interview that, you know, your whole motivation was to get asked to play in his band. Yeah. And you had been practicing so much, you know, I, I mean, at such a young age that, uh, you know, you started playing with your peers and you were like, wait a second, how come these guys aren't as good? Like, oh, in high school? Yeah. <laughs> Like, when a couple of guys asked me to play with them, you know, and uh, and they're good musicians, you know, but like Kofi was just he was playing with like he- sitting in with heavyweight jazz cats like Ron Carter and Donald Byrd when he was 12, you know, like so he was just so far advanced. And I was like, wow, man, these guys were they're like nowhere near Kofi's level, you know, so it was kind of a. uh 
not a rude awakening, but just a realization like, okay, there's tears. Wow. Kofi, like, wow. So then it made me latch onto him even more. I was like, well, stick with that dude because you're going to be like way ahead of the game. And so what, I, did, what did your points was so sweet about it? Like, I could never deal with like the, the, really mean teachers i have to be careful because we cuss on my podcast so much so i so mine too it's totally fine okay i just <laughs> my mom gives me a hard time but i couldn't i i one of the reasons i never went to new york is i just didn't want to deal like with you know mean old like asshole teachers because i always had such a sweet teacher in kofi you know yeah. and uh he showed me so much and never made me feel like less than or stupid or anything like there was no stupid questions with Kofi and I love that and, and having a mentor that close to you I mean he's only three years my elder but he's still I feel like probably 10 or 20 years ahead of me and musically if not more I never did catch up to him you know but uh he was really sweet, and I think that's that was a good fortune for me to have a mentor because, you know, I've a lot of the hustle stuff and you know bootstraps and all that. I feel like I don't resonate with that a lot because I always like the term work. I've always hated that, and but I will work hard. Like I'll do fourteen-hour days in the studio, and. I'll play like for hours and hours and hours, but I feel like most of that is due to uh, uh, increase in inspiration. So mine kind of goes up and down. And then when I have a moment, it's like sets of waves coming in. And then when the big sets come in, I surf it, surf it, surf it, and I get a lot done. And so I do put in a lot of time, but to me it's play. So that's how I have to like flip it. I have to make sure that my mind sees it as play and inspiration and not work and the hustle or the grind and all that. Cause that's just the way my personality works. Like, well, I'll be putting in the same time. Right. You know, and that, the, the, the grind part or the hustle part that, and I have this conversation a lot with friends of mine, uh, cause on the road, we're on the road perpetually year round. And even when you make a lot of money, it doesn't stop like something. It's just, your modus operandi so you that's you keep doing it and so having really young kids I was like hey I don't want to be out here all the time I want to be home more and then it started making me like look at things differently until I actually like turned my ship all the way around 180 degrees and now I'm like I want to be on the road as little as possible and make the most money and have the most time with my kids but to your point and philosophy, I'm 56 now. So it's kind of the time for me to, you know, I've been hustling and I did do it, man. I grinded out every nasty college bar in the country. Just ugh, the bathrooms. Oh, I mean, really yucky stuff to where no wonder I was drinking so much, <laughs> you know, but then I had to wrestle that gorilla because it's like, look, you can't be dying trying to make a living. You know, it's like you're not in a coal mine where you just have to breathe this stuff. Like, you cannot drink the alcohol. So, you you know, but then I got to deal with drunk people. And so I either want to get away from them or drink myself so I don't 
have i'm not it's not a drag to deal with and that was a whole thing and my my solution was that was just to get out of this i don't go to bars i don't play bars i don't eat my friends that come to town i feel bad because they they want me to come sit in i'm going to bed with my kids at like eight o'clock like what time you start i'm like man that's way too late i'm already four hours in Uh, (laughs) and i gotta be up at 6 30 or 5 30 because we ride 16 miles every day starting at 6 30 a.m so i can't be hanging out with you drunk till 4 a.m and then like two two and a half hours later you're like oh no i like flipped it all but i did do the grind there's no there's no escape in that part yeah we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dive into all that too man but you know just say were your parents what did your parents do what was their what was their career my mom was a nurse at dc general hospital for 30 some years and then my dad was a social worker that worked with juvenile delinquents oh wow so they were like really giving back you know both both of their careers both very service oriented yeah and uh so it was not an option for us to like get in trouble they would be like if you get arrested call somebody else like save your one phone call for somebody else don't call us because you had no business putting yourself in that position i mean it was like i was more scared of them than the police so you know it was uh in a good way i mean my dad i I, you know i never was abused physically but you know (laughs) you you didn't want to get in that position i get it my My dad was a boxer in the marines he like never taught me to fight because we went to these really rich white schools but we lived in the hood and I'm thinking, like, why did my dad ever teach me to defend myself, you know? And he didn't want me hitting one of those rich white kids when I lived in Southeast. <laughs> yeah, I, don't I get it, you know. But my son's going to learn, you know, I don't like – there weren't really bullies at my school, so there was that. But there's just some weird people out there, and I, I want my son to be able to at least defend himself. I don't want him to beat anyone up, but, you know, I'm going to be different about that. Yeah. Well, talk, talk to me a little bit about, you mentioned, like, I know you went to Sidwell Friends, which is like the elite private school in the D.C. area. I mean, like, you know, President Obama's kids went there, I believe, and everyone, I you know. like President's kids, too, yeah. Yeah, so when, so you were very, very arts-oriented growing up. You know, your parents, I was like, your parents really pushed. I know you did some acting. You said you were a dancer. Obviously, you were very gifted in music. How, like, how did you, how did you end up at Sidwell? Like, you know, it's well, that started really early. I asked my mom that I was like, how do we get in the, you know, because Kofi was so gifted. She met this lady. Oh, what's her name? Oh, she told me and I wrote it down. I'm confusing it with a teacher. I think it was Mrs. Burwell. It was a lady from Howard University. And she, um, because Kofi was so exceptional, they evaluated him and they realized he was academically very smart too, which we all were. My parents were very uh, bookish, you know, and they were the first ones in their family to be able to go to college. So it was always like premium. The life my parents could have had had we not all gone to private school. I mean, you talk about sacrifice, man, because they were just two middle-class parents but it was all about education, you know? So this was like first grade for, uh, I started Potomac school in first grade, which was just like Sidwell. I mean, I went to school with the Kennedys and stuff like Bobby and JFK's kids and stuff. And uh, so Kofi was was going there. They were gonna try to get him a scholarship. 
and on the advice of this lady uh, from Howard University. And my mom brought me and my sister there because she just didn't have daycare, you know. So I, I'm babysitting my little sister, and I'm reading to her, and I was four years old. I'm sitting in the office while they're uh, dealing with Kofi. And the lady asked my mom, I was like, how old is he? He's, like, reading really well for four years old. Like, that's crazy. And she Or reading really well for that age. She said he's four, and she was like, that's nuts. And my son is exactly like that now. <laughs> it's so funny. He just got evaluated by his teachers. We had our first parent-teacher conference. He's in kindergarten. And they told us he's reading at a second grade level. <laughs> and I was like, I knew he was advanced, but I didn't know he was like that far ahead. So anyway, they were like, well, we need to get O'Teal in there too. You know, so now both of us have scholarships to this elite school. It took my mom like an hour and a half to drive there wow. from Southeast Washington because of traffic. So she would do graveyard shifts, get home at like 7 a.m. or whatever, or before, before that, actually. Cook us breakfast, get us out the door, drive us to McLean, Virginia and back, which is it's just insane, the amount of sacrifice that she made. But it really, uh, it really helped us because I never went to college, but the education that I got between uh, Potomac School, which I started in first grade, and Sidwell Friends, which I started in seventh grade, um, just was gave me enough good uh, foundation and critical thinking and stuff like that and that I could move throughout the world, you know, comfortably. I just needed to master my addictions. That was my hang-up. You know? So, well, talk, talk to me about that a little bit, man, if you don't mind getting into it a little. Um, you know, so, yeah. When you got out of so you when you graduated Sidwell Friends, what was the next step? I got a gig, uh, thanks to my brother at this uh, in Virginia Beach with this top forty uh, beach band called The Squares, and they just played like five nights a week. They had a gig right on the uh, hotel bar that was on the beach, right. So the crowd was built in. You know, summertime is when you made most of your money, and then off season. You would do okay. We did uh, some more gigs in like Norfolk, Virginia. We had to drive 30 minutes uh, inland. But uh, we did just fine. Like throughout the course of the year, I made plenty of money. And I was just like, wow, why was everybody so worried about me being a musician? Like this is a piece of cake. The tunes are easy and I'm playing five nights a week. Like really, I could have bought a house back then if I had any kind of, you know, uh, sense of looking forward, but I was so young. I was just completely green, you know, and then, uh, so that was a great experience. And Kofi and I ended up living together for a couple of years because he got a gig with a band that was our main competition. And the drummer with that band was my best friend before Kofi moved there. He kind of took me under his wing because Kofi had talked to him ahead of time and he found me and, uh, it's it's funny. It's really making me realize like how my mentors all along the way, like between my dad and Kofi, the music teachers I had at home, then Eddie Castillo in Virginia Beach, and then Colonel Bruce Hampton in Atlanta. Like all along the way, the universe provided me an elder person that had compassion for me and really taught me, you know, some crucial things. Like Eddie Castillo was super important in my life because he was like my older brother before Kofi got there. 
He was a drummer, and, Eddie Castillo. That, he was a yeah. drummer. Yeah, okay. And it turns out we're related by marriage, <laughs> which we didn't find out till like last year. Amazing. Because our 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 families are close together in uh, Key West, Florida. It's the whole thing is so mystical and crazy. But uh, yeah, he taught me how to write cheat sheets so I could learn tunes really fast, which I still use to this day. When I was learning like uh, Dead Company, trying to learn 120 Grateful Dead songs <laughs> really fast, you know. And uh, and then Eddie also taught me like how to just take care of myself being on my own because I was terrified, man, being on my own. I never went to college, so all of a sudden I'm just in this little apartment in Virginia Beach by myself, and I know one guy, and that's Eddie Castillo and the people that I'm working with. Wow. And uh, it was I was really looking back, I was really terrified. If it wasn't for him, I don't know, honestly, what I would have done. And that's when I picked up drinking because I was, I've always had stage fright and um, it's a terrifying experience even to this day. And I discovered vodka and I had a vodka shot. uh, And all of a sudden I felt like Superman and it didn't deter my playing at all at first, which was terrible because it never deterred me from drinking. And I didn't really have hangovers because I would just wake up and like do a bong hit and then I'd feel fine again. And that's like, you know, that's being 19, right? Like, da, da, da. So I had no deterrence whatsoever. And it finally caught up with me later in my, in my later 20s when it was just like, okay, this is ridiculous, you know. But um, and it was actually because I thought I couldn't play. I think I was 28, and we played uh, Variety Playhouse with Colonel Bruce Hampton. I know well. <laughs> and um, I was doing my usual drinking and smoking routine, you know. And then someone put a bottle of champagne. It was New Year's Eve, so there's a bottle of champagne appeared in front of every musician, you know, right before midnight. So the last thing I really remember is turning up the bottle like this. And then I remember feeling like I was out of control. And I heard the gig later and I wasn't. But the fact that I wasn't sure really, that was the first time I was like, all right, now we got to cut this because you have to be able to do your thing. So I, I think that was always my saving grace. Like I had put one thing before partying. Yeah. And it was like, if I couldn't play, uh, we got to. Because that's all I'm here for. That's the only thing I know on earth that makes any sense whatsoever. I had no belief in God or anything like that before then. I had no kids or wife. So I hadn't, you know, I didn't know what I was living for, really. And um, so I, that was the one thing. And that kept me from getting too far out, you know. Mm-hmm. And I also had a needle phobia. So that took care of heroin. And I never liked cocaine. I just didn't dig it. And so that took care of that. So alcohol was really the one that I had to that I had to get under control. And it just it took me till forty. Yeah. But I I did it. Yeah. Well, congrats, man. I and mean, that's a that's a big thing. What's that? You need to have that reason. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. That's absolutely. what it, that's the whole thing for me. And <laughs> at the beginning I, it was just like I don't know. I had a huge spiritual awakening and I had to be like, okay, when you were happy without all this crap at some point, you know? So what what were you doing then? Like go back to doing that, you know? And that was the beginning of it for me. 
I love it, man. Okay, let me just ask you one question before we get kind of go further into your journey. Your parents were huge, like academic. My mom was the same way, you know. So my mom was a single parent. Um, she raised my brother and I. She was a government doctor, so we had like, you know, it wasn't like she was like this like baller doctor. We lived in like a blue collar neighborhood, and yeah. you know, she worked nine to five so she could take care of us. There was just her and my my brother who's seven years older than me. And for her, all that mattered to her was that we became doctors. Like, she's like, you two need to stand on your own two feet. And uh, her, whole, her whole life was sacrificed. She sacrificed everything for us. Like, very much how you describe your mom, how she'd work the graveyard shift, cook your breakfast, take your school. That's like what my mom did. All she cared about was academics, you know? Um, so, you know, when you decided not to go to college, was that like a big deal? Ooh, I'm the only one. It's funny. I'm the only one in my family that never went to college and find I'm financially the most successful, you know? of course. but, but yeah, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And at the, the turning point was, you know, my parents always about everything, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever. They're like, look, we're not going to agree with whatever, but you can come to us. So I always felt like I could, could come to them in honesty, you know? And I told them, I was like, look, and they could see I was obsessed I was obsessed with the bass guitar from 15 years old on. I picked it up at 14, blah, blah, blah. When I had to stop dancing, I got so depressed, and that was my therapy. And then when Kofi started training me, because, I, you know, I, I'm a drummer. I had, and I had taken lessons on a bunch of different instruments, but I didn't know harmony. I knew rhythm, and I knew, uh, I knew how to read music on other instruments, but I didn't know how to improvise harmonically. So when he started training me on that, I just went down the rabbit hole and never came out. So one day I just had a talk with him. You know, they had this thing where around about 15 years old, they start telling me, you know, you got to move out at 18. You're going to either be in college or have a job or whatever. You're going to be out of here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew that day was coming, and, and I just was like, look, I don't want to go to school and I don't want to move out. So I'm asking you guys, will you let me stay home for just a year and let me just practice so I can just get so good that when I get that, there can be no doubt, like nobody's going to do the gig any better than me. And I was already pretty good at that point. Um, and they said, yeah, they trusted me and they wow. let me do it. And then a friend of mine who, was a really rich guy in high school he inherited his first whatever amount of money and then he he bought a house and asked me to move in he said i won't charge you rent if you'll just teach me so we were playing like eight hours a day between me giving him lessons and then i'm practicing and then i had other students you know just gigs and whatever and um so that was a real blessing and uh but it was a really big deal yeah, that I didn't go to school. Super big. Super yeah, I was, I, that was just like kind of reading through your story. That was I definitely that was one of the things I had to ask you because I figured as much, man. So talk. So you're in Virginia Beach. Is it the next step, Atlanta? After that? Yeah, and that's when I. That's when the real world set in. So talk, did your brother go to Atlanta too? Was Kofi in Atlanta he also? Did and we just started. It was oh, it was brutal. I mean, it was good for me, you know. I remember my mom calling me and I was somewhere and she basically pointed out, she's like, okay, you don't have money right now. You're not homeless yet. <laughs> and you still have food. And apparently you still have a little bit of weed. <laughs> so like, um, you're, and you're rich in time. 
And I didn't get that back then, but now I get it. Rich in time. Because at a certain point in my life, time became more worth more than money. Mm-hmm. So, but you have to go through those things. And and honestly, if I hadn't hit that bottom, the bottom is what led to meeting Colonel Bruce. So well, like, what were you doing during those years, man? So like, you know, just any, gigs? Anything I could. I was playing reggae gigs, country gigs, smooth jazz gigs, like regular jazz gigs, uh, Latin gigs. Uh, any kind of wedding gig. I was a tuxedo, putting on the monkey suit. I played the big band gigs. I played uh anything I could. Man, I was just trying to make enough to get some pizza for the day and keep a some kind of a rent plate paid on a room. And uh, it was really tough, man. And then I met the colonel because the drummer Jeff Sipe was like, he knew how frustrated I was, and uh. He was a well-known musician at the time, like a successful musician at the time, right? Oh, we were all kind of grinding, a little bit starving that back then. Yeah, I mean, people—he had been on the scene in Atlanta for years before I had, so people knew who he was, and he introduced us to a lot of people, and so did Sam Guest, one of the guys I was playing with down there, who it's a, it was kind of another like cover band, you know, but um. He said, you know, a lot of guys, when they're frustrated to get their yayas out, they go play with this crazy guy, Colonel Bruce Hampton. I was like, well, whatever, let's, I'm game, you know, <laughs> and the Colonel. But someone discouraged you from doing that, right? Before they were like, oh, yeah, this was after I really started playing with him. Okay. All right, cool. It, it's funny. So, yeah, this would be good for people if you ever, if this ever happens to you. But the Colonel didn't even look like a musician. And he looked like he could actually be like a homeless person. Yeah. And he just looked very disheveled and always had like a mustard stain or something. And one part of his shirt was untucked and the other part was still in. His zipper was open or something. It just looked like everything looked wrong. And then like, right, <laughs> we had only known each other for a really short time. And he just looks at me and goes, August 24th at 2 in the morning. And I was like, whoa, I was born at 1.57 in the morning. So I was like, what? What? Okay. How'd you do that? And he said, well, Bob. He starts trying to explain, knowing that it would just sound like absolute poppycock to me, you know. And uh, so I kind of started following him after that because I was like, something's up with this guy and I just got to know. And his whole thing was, look, you're not going to make any money here but you're going to have the time of your life. And I was like, okay, at least something's going to improve. And boy, was he right. And again, with the theme of my life, inspiration, with inspiration and joy, everything followed it. He picked the worst night of the week. He asked his club, give me a Monday night. And he gave everybody a penny back. It was 99 cents every Monday. <laughs> so ridiculous, you know? And we packed it out. We'd have a line out the door, you know? And then we'd say, okay, now we'll, let's go to Athens. Or let's do a Saturday night. Then we'd pack it out. Then we'd go to Athens, Georgia, and do like a Friday night there and then a Saturday night. So then we had Monday, Friday, Saturday. I was like, oh, I'm eating. <laughs> Absolutely little. I mean, we're not making money at all. But, we, you know, I was like steady money. And then we kind of widened our circle. 
Then we went to Nashville. We went to Macon, Georgia. We went to North Florida, Gainesville, Florida, and then it got wider. And then, you know, other bands like Widespread Panic and Fish and Blues Traveler uh, found out about us. And then we were like their favorite band. And then they took us out on tour with them. And then when they did that Horde tour, which was like all yeah. the bands came together to try to get into bigger venues, we were the opening band. And like the managers, none of them wanted us on there at all. And all the bands were like, if they don't do it, we quit. And that was like so touching to me. Like I can almost still cry about it because, again, there was like somebody came up to like be an advocate. And so I'm always like this bootstraps thing, while it's fine, and it probably works for some people. And some people are self-starters. It's like John Mayer's like that. Like he'll just do it. What you see he did in his kitchen or his living room, you know, like he just does it all himself. Uh, but uh, for the rest of us, it was like, you know, or for in my case, there were people all along the way that, that came along and were just like angels of mercy. Yeah, know? but you know, I got to just interject a little bit, man. I, so I totally agree with you, man. Um, and I, I think you're 100% right. But you're also like a super humble guy. And, you know, you you were ready to capitalize on those opportunities, right? So that opportunity presented itself to a million people, man. Not a million, maybe 50 to 100 people, you know, but you were able to capitalize on it because you were such a gifted musician and people saw something special in you as well. And all that hard work you put in to get there, even though it wasn't work for you, it was like, you know, you were putting an effort just to get better at your craft. Hours, yeah. All It's like the universe works in a way, you know, like that's... In my your point too, also, you know, the guy that took me out to lunch... <laughs> and this dude, I was super poor right now. He was like, hey, can I take you out to lunch? I was like, hell yeah, you can take me out to lunch. I get to eat something more than like a slice of mellow mushroom pizza. <laughs> Sweet, I could get a salad with that. So he takes me out. And <laughs> this is the super early days with Colonel. And he was trying, he was in, genuinely looking out for my best interest. So I'm not dogging him out. And he was like, <laughs> but it just made me laugh when I realized why. So uh, somewhere in the lunch, he was like, well, look, man, I just want to talk to you about this Colonel Bruce guy. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's nuts. And he's like, man, I really don't think you should play with him. Like, it's going to really hurt your career. Now, he's thinking locally in Atlanta, right? So there's two lessons in that. One is, you know, don't think small, right? I've already left my hometown twice. So I'm, I'm not, I have no desire to go back to Washington, D.C. whatsoever. Never have. I doubt I ever will. Right. So I wasn't, I already wasn't thinking just locally other than I wanted to survive. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, but the other one is when someone doesn't see what you see and they're trying to, even if they have your best interest at heart, you just have to be like, well, I appreciate that, but I'm sorry, like trust your vision. So I agree with you what you're saying because a guy and I found this out I found the proof of what you're saying in an interesting way when the George Floyd thing happened I started posting a lot about what I know about black history and stuff and this guy was like you know you're a limousine liberal why are you saying all this stuff this country's been really good to you and blah 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 and I was like hey 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 man wait a minute first of all the reason I'm successful my parents Having my parents, there's a good damn chance I was going to be successful. And then I also have a really bold personality. Like, I took some crazy chances that people like this dude 
took his time and money to take me out to lunch to go, don't do this. And I was like, thanks for lunch off the cliff. You know, like I had no intention of listening to that guy because I was so led by my inspiration and my original vision for what I wanted to get done. And here this guy, while coming from totally left field, somehow aligned with, it's just, I knew, I was like, I don't know what's going on over here. Like if you met an extraterrestrial, like for real, if one, if you opened up a guy in the hospital and you were like, oh shit, you know, and the guy comes to, and he's like, yeah, so you saw, huh? He's like, yeah, I saw. He's like, okay, don't tell anybody, you know, but you know. And so then you want to learn, you're like, well, so what's up, dude? You've been here this whole time, you know? <laughs> um, so that's how it was for me. And man, it just changed my life. If it wasn't for him, I would not have been musically prepared or in life too, in some other ways for the Allman Brothers and for the Grateful Dead, because that's not the track I was on. I was like on the jazz rock fusion track, you know? And a lot of those guys are just starving. Like they literally will move to Europe because they can't work here. Yeah. Right. That's very true, man. You know, tell me, but why was why was the Aquarium Rescue Unit such like a polarizing force for like in managers' eyes? Like, was it Colonel Bruce? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, musicians. I mean, there's amazing musicianship. But we had no crowd. You know, it's all money. They don't give a damn. Like you have, you have very few people that do high art and also are financially successful, right? Um, like in the old days, in Duke Ellington's time, the highest art was also the dance music. Like, you know, so you have like Miles and then you have the people that played with Miles and then like the rest of us are just side men. They got to go to Europe to make a living or teach or whatever. You know, it just, it's very, uh, that's why I have a hard time with guys that get bitter about their career because i'm like dude all these jazz musicians these guys are just playing on such high levels and they're like you know can't make it you're still doing 50 dollar gigs in new york like come on man uh -huh. like that's a long line and you're near the nearer to the back of it you know right. so don't get bitter just stay in and keep doing your thing so you know that's they just we were we had no following we had only advocates that, and they were the ones with the following so they were like, why are these guys on? I got 10 other bands that could help put more butts in seats. Got it. See, to their credit, they were like, we'll put the butts in seats. And these guys are our inspiration. We yeah, want yeah. Aquarium Rescue to get us all like fired up before we go on. And, you know, what an honor. And I didn't even really like I kind of knew that. But now being older, I can see it more clearly. I wasn't even really as cognizant of that back right. then. You're should. like musicians, musicians, you know, like you're the band that musicians want to go see. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we were, we were lucky. I mean, I did this interview and I got the Allman Brothers gig and they were like, well, how do you feel being like, you know, one of the true founders of the jam band scene? I was like, what's that? I didn't even know it had a name, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, to me, we were, it was just all, uh, deadheads like hippies and what i called neo hippies like trust fund hippies or whatever yeah and um which i don't have anything against thank you guys for helping me put my kids through private school <laughs> you know not judging <laughs> yeah and they do the rope miles so you can't say you know 
I couldn't do There's no amount of money that I could have already where I would not miss any of the dead and company shows, like do every single one. Like, I don't know. I have an admiration for anybody that follows us from gig to gig. You know. Loyal fans, man. Um, so let's just talk about Colonel Bruce a little bit. So someone had uh, my friend, our Jared, is a friend of mine, and you know as well. Told, told me a great line about Colonel Bruce. He said, like, when, like Bruce was just like this mystical figure who would just like literally drop bombs on you, and like you know, you think about them really for honestly for like the rest of your life. Like these things would sit in your mind. And one of the things that he said was, which I think is such an amazing line. He said, "Who you actually are far exceeds that who you think you are." Right. Like that's like a Bruce, Colonel Bruceism. Drilled that to me from the very beginning. Yeah. So what, what, can you tell me what that means to you? Like, what does he mean exactly when he says that? You know, like that we have endless potential. I would. I, that's the way I read. Uh, that, it's know? a philosophical thing. Like, you know, um, I mean, it's such a wide thing, and I look at it in terms of mysticism. I mean, let me approach it this way: the first book he ever gave me was the Book of the Tao, right? And so a lot of that, uh, and now at 56, that's my go-to, like all religious books are, but that's still just like my one. So in Bruce's belief system, everything comes out of the unknown. All of the seen comes from the unseen. That's why you see, you hear the same language, it's mystics, it's the same Mm -hmm. stuff that Sun Ra was talking about, right? To do Krishnamurti was one of his big ones, the unknown. And so out of the unknown springs all this order, all this intricacy. You know what I mean? Like the things would even evolve, like they suddenly just keep changing and like everything's pushing towards life. It's a it's an amazing, miraculous, mystical thing to us, maybe not to other people. So in that vein, he's like, the thing that created you and the thing that you are a part of, if you look, if you could look at the hugeness of it, you will realize that things are bigger than the, what you're like, our society teaches us to like compartmentalize. Like even uh, doctors specialize in one thing. You don't go to the ear doctor for the knee or whatever you know what i mean and so he's like he wants to zoom out and look at the whole body and how it works so he's thinking of the universe or the multiverse so and he also is a great um he has a great understanding of human nature and so he sees how we limit ourselves and we do the same thing in terms of our music and that's his thing it's like your music is a reflection of your life for better or worse so if your perception of life is like this, your music is going to be like this. And he wants your music to be like this right? for your own benefit, not for his even. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, okay. I said, so how do I break this box that I've created around myself? You know, and he didn't say this explicitly, but basically he was like, well, that's what I'm for but you have to let me do it. I can't just do, you have to give me the permission and I'll destroy it completely for you. And I was like, all right, let's do this. So then he would do things that seemed silly. He was like, try to play like the first time you played when you couldn't play. And I was like, damn, cause that's honest. Mm-hmm. 
He's like, if you're being honest and you're playing, at some point, I'm going to hear that too. It doesn't need to be, you know, and this speaks to like allowing yourself to make mistakes, which is a huge thing if you're going to improvise, right? That's a huge thing in life, actually. <laughs> well, and because we need to improvise in life, right? We don't know, like, we plan to go right, and then all of a sudden a tsunami comes and is like, guess what? We need to all go that way right now. <laughs> so that's just that. <laughs> Improvise, go, you know? So I thought, wow, and I couldn't do it. And I was like, wow, how can he stop me? And this guy can't even really play. Like, technically, he doesn't have a lot of chops, but he could stump me time and time, seemingly like off the top of his head, right? So finally, I just am like, you know, I'm one of those people. <laughs> I just gotta like, I just take the challenge, you know? And I was like, oh, I know what to do. So I took my base and I flipped it this way. And I, and I actually had to look like to make sure that this finger was on the same string as this finger. And before I hit a note, he was already laughing. He's like, that's it, that's it. Cause he could tell that was, there needs to be that threat that it might not work. He loved that. He's like, that's the drama of life. Like when the guy, you know, bases are loaded and there's one, you know, <laughs> can you make this hit and you're either going to lose or you're just going to cry. And so <laughs> then I hit the note and it was all messed up. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that's it. But the lesson was, he was like, I want you to be able to access that when you're playing the other way, just in the interest of being completely honest. Like, I want all of it. I want to hear you with your cologne and all showered up and your hair is done and your nails are manicured and everything. But I also want to hear you with bad breath and you need a haircut and you haven't shaved and you're stinking. And you know, like <laughs> he wanted all of it. He wanted to hear me embarrass myself. He wanted to hear me build the Sistine Chapel or the Eiffel Tower, but he also wanted to hear me like blast it with bombs and tear it down. He wanted to hear joy and sorrow he wanted to hear blood and life and death he wanted the whole thing and so i no one ever like when they're teaching you to play an instrument they don't teach you that stuff right. and sometimes life just has to happen to you like until he would be like didn't you have a dog die or something <laughs> you know but i mean we're so young we hadn't had a mom die or it's like you know some people have tragedies earlier on but you know we hadn't had a lot of that so i had a pretty charmed life you know right so, but he knew i had access to all that he just wanted to make sure that all that other stuff i didn't buy into all that bullshit and just like right. completely like pull off all my clothes and be there naked on stage you know you know i was actually in atlanta that i was in atlanta from 93 to 97 i was there for college and uh i actually never you know it's interesting my friend got involved with colonel bruce after we had already graduated but we were we actually went to our first fish shows together i went to like a million dead shows like in jerry time and uh yeah which which was cool and you know um but you know it's interesting so colonel bruce to me just from speaking with jared my buddy he, you know he always surrounded himself with i mean just amazing virtuosic musicians you know and i asked jared i was like well you know could colonel bruce like could he play because well, i play guitar he played you know, we all play you know and uh, you know, I got pretty heavy into guitar actually, and he, and he's like, he's like, well, let's put it this way, he's like, Colonel Bruce said it's all about timing and tone, you know, and like, you know, he could just rail on one note for like, you know, minutes, and it works, you know, it just works, and I thought that was so interesting, kind of like what you were saying too, like, you know, like he didn't have like the chops, but he had, you know, 
He got but it. He didn't even need an instrument. Right. He said, you know, there should be the threat. There's a certain anticipation, which we all have. You know, the lights come down. Yeah. And then, you know, so he was like, if you know what's going to happen, you've already ruined it. Now, if you don't know totally what's going to happen, that threat is real. Like people can feel it. People yeah. really can feel it, you know? Yeah. And he, so he, he always <laughs> wanted that. And Jared, I got to say, man, Jared is, I've ta- had a pretty deep talks with him about the Colonel. He's a really great guy at explaining. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a way with words, man. Yeah. He's one of the few, he really gets it and can explain it too, you know, because Bruce could do, he one time he had a shoe and he said he's like you you don't even need a guitar he goes watch it he takes his shoe off and he holds it there you know and so he's just holding it and that's all he does and because he doesn't do anything people are going more and more they're like what the and then they start trying to they're creating scenarios in their own head yeah you know (laughs) then it's like and you can just feel the threat and the anticipation just building and then he just drops it and walks off and people are like he looks at me like you know (laughs) Like, he's like i don't even need it you don't need an instrument O'Teal. instruments are for cowards that's why you say tunings for cowards you know <laughs> line your pegs up straight make sure they're all straight then it's in tune we'd just be like yeah but then he could do he'd go watch and he'd detune his guitar and play the most amazing shit and we'd be on the floor just dying because it was really melodic and it was he would play phrases and sentences and make a paragraph and tell his whole story and then we'd all be on the floor and he'd be like see tunings for cowards i was just like (laughs) it was like watching a miracle worker that he showed you on stage that he was right and you were wrong he's like watch me i just it was amazing (laughs) it was amazing did he have? Did he make a good living? Like you know, w- was he a starving musician or? <laughs> okay, Bruce was totally psychic. Gigs kind of were the feeder for his gambling, and gambling's really how he made his living. Oh, really? And he went up and down because sometimes he would, he would get. I mean, he played long shots. That's how he did it, you know. And sometimes you lose, and uh, you know. <laughs> That's a whole nother story. But yeah, Bruce could have been rich. Um, but you know, a lot of psychics are like that. Like I studied these guys, they did remote viewing for the CIA. And all this is public knowledge. So this is not a conspiracy theory, but the CIA hired these guys because the Russians did in the seventies and they did they were like, We don't know whether it works or not, but we're we're gonna do it. So they got this team of people together to do it to see if they could really do it and they really could do it. And you know, as they did different things, one group from was like, well, let's play the stock market and just see how you did. And they did great. And you know what? They got bored with it. They got bored with it. Uh, no risk, no excitement. It just was like, okay, so we can do this. And that, that wasn't their thing. Like gambling's not my thing or the, it, I had other addictions, but that wasn't one of them. And it wasn't theirs either. And they just let it go. You know, I think they knew, well, I'm going to be okay in life. I'm going to be provided. I'm going to have food and a roof over my head. Like, I don't need to be a billionaire. Like, um, so, and Bruce was very much like that. Like, it just, it didn't matter. In fact, when he was about to be successful, every time it happened, he would sabotage it himself. So he purposely did not 
make a good living. He could have been immensely wealthy, immensely, and uh, worshipped, but he didn't want the idolatry either. He was like, oh, no, 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 bop, 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 bop. Uh-uh. Plus, I think with too much attention on it, they would have found out he was an extraterrestrial, and then there'd been a whole <laughs> can of worms dealing with the NSA and the CIA and who else, who God knows who else. <laughs> Could be bothered. They so- pretend to be, they play the fool a lot. They play the fool. Yeah, Son Ron, yeah. let me tell you something. Him and Bruce, those guys, man, they didn't want the FBI and the NSA and stuff messing with them. They were like, nah, they're playing the fool. But <laughs> yeah. that's so from from Aquarium Rescue Unit, you know, you were I guess someone in the Atlanta music scene, you know, all the brothers were looking for a bass player, and someone in the Atlanta music scene like must have referred you to Greg Allman or Dickie Betts or something at that point, right? It was actually Butch Trucks a drummer because I was doing a side project with him. Oh, were you? Okay. Which uh he was he had been doing in the past with Jimmy Herring, who was a guitarist from Aquarium Rescue and Derek Trucks. And they pulled me into that. And then while we were about to go into rehearsal we yeah, we were about to go in rehearsals for that and um Warren Haynes and Alan Woody quit the band. They were at the Beacon Theater. And so um JMO knew me from the past from like the jazz world in Atlanta. And then Butch knew me from playing with him and Jimmy and Derek. So <clears throat> they pulled me in. But Bert Holman later did tell me, for the people listening to your podcast, I asked him one time, I said, why, <clears throat> why did you pick me? And he said, well, we called people that we knew all over the country, you know, in different places, and they all had the same story about you. And I was like, okay, well, I guess it was a good one. He said, yeah, he said, great player, nice guy. That's, you know, oh. I was a wild man, drinking, chasing women, you know, smoking the bus, probably. But I wasn't like a, you know, you're a good dude, evil guy. Yeah, I was a, you know, I'm the happy drunk. People would say, like, I had got drunk one time <laughs> long after I quit drinking with some buddies that I had, they were new friends and they were like, the next day, they were like, dude, you're a really happy drunk. I was like, well, cool. That's good. I'm glad I turned belligerent, you know. And um, <laughs> so that was a good lesson for me because all those crappy college bars that I played, you never know who's watching you. Mm-hmm. But the promoter's watching you, and promoters talk to other promoters all the way. It's a small world. The promoter world is a small world. Mm-hmm. And so – even though they might be promoting this little club, their friends are, might be doing the biggest shows in town, or they might be doing the biggest shows da- in town down to the small clubs. Right. So I was like, wow, cool. Well, I'm glad I did play all those shitty clubs. You know? <laughs> I'm telling you, everything happens for a reason, man. You know, all that hustle, you know, somehow pays off. Yeah. What, what, so tell me about the first gig with the Allman Brothers. Like, you know, do they audition you or what? Is it like, or are you? First, I got the gig, and then Dickie wanted to have auditions when he realized I didn't, that, like, I didn't have any other records. And to be fair, he was like, you know, if there's probably someone that grew up in the South yeah. that knows all of our stuff already, that worshiped us, that knows what we are. And yeah. I was like, okay, whatever, you know, I'm just like, I knew I could do it. And especially after playing with the Colonel, I had, I had a much better understanding of it. And they also, wanted although they weren't sure at the time what i had to bring to it because those guys always like everybody loves jazz cats you know totally you're playing yeah. 
if they can if they if they're not too snobby to open themselves up to rock and roll or funk or whatever yeah. um, blues or anything country bluegrass whatever i'm open to everything you know yeah. and so uh I, we ended up having auditions and i still got it you know i, I want to share one story I, I think i read this in an interview somewhere that, that you had done and so, someone was asking you, well, you know, like, did you listen to the Allman Brothers? Like, did you have all their albums? Did you know all their music and stuff? And you're like, well, I was at a college, I was at a high school party, and you were like walking from room to room, and Whipping Post, I think, happened to be playing. You were just like, stop for me, like, oh, this is pretty cool. And that was like the first time you're like, hey, what is this? They're like, oh, this is the Allman Brothers. You don't know the Allman Brothers? It's like, no, but it sounds cool. And then that was like when you were 18, and then the next time you heard the Allman Brothers was when you actually were playing with them. Is that true? Well, I mean, I'm sure I heard them at some point because yeah, but... I hear them all the time when I walk into restaurant stores or whatever, but I didn't know it. I say, I think that same thing about Grateful Dead now, because all the time I hear dead songs. I'm like, oh, yeah, I start singing the background parts or whatever. I'm like, how many times did I hear this in my life? And it just went and I didn't even realize. Yeah. It's so just, wild. You know? So so tell me about the first gig, man. Well, so tell me about the first gig with y'all. Oh. Was that at the Beacon or? No. It was uh, June 97. Um, How old were you at that point? So you were 30? 32. 32, okay. And uh, it was in Boston at Great Woods Amphitheater. I don't know what the hell they call it. Mm -hmm. I refuse to. Yeah, something corporate. The Dunkin' Donuts Amphitheater or whatever. But um, yeah, I'll never forget that because we opened with the first song I learned, which was the first song on their first album, Don't Want You No More. So, you know, it just, and then it goes into Cross to Bear, which I can literally, if I think about that song long enough, the hair will stand up on my arm and I'll probably tear up. That song never got old, man, in 17 years. So to open that way, like the way the Almond Brothers starts in history, was just like at Great Woods. Fortunately for me, I played some of these, a bunch of these amphitheaters uh, before with the Horde tour. So I wasn't completely, of course, when we went on, they were empty. <laughs> By the time Widespread or Fish or Blues Traveler went on, they was full. But I was used to like how much reverb there was, how long it took for a note to stop making a sound after I cut it off, you know? And, uh, but it still was overwhelming because now as the new guy, you know, all eyes are on you. Everybody knows what the other guys are going to do. And they're like, how, how's he going to, and there's a certain amount of this, you know, Yeah. <laughs> just like, but we were getting into some good jams. So I felt good about it. The band made me feel good about it, but you just can't help but be like, this is big. Like, you know, it's big. You could see it coming a mile away. Like if you know, you're going to blast off into space, you know, two years from now, or, or let's say at that point, it was like four months, three months or something. Okay. You got three months to prepare yourself. When you're in the seat, <laughs> you feel the fire start. You're going to freak out, you know? Yeah. And uh, I'm sure I had a drink and <laughs> smoked something before I went on. And I, I was just like doing wine. I probably more just wine at that point, you know, a couple of glasses of wine. And uh, it was terrifying. But, you know, Greg Allman told me that he never uh, stopped being nervous. And I found this out from his ex-wife. You know, after about a week, everybody does laundry. 
So I'm coming down the hotel with my laundry bag and Greg, she, they weren't married at the time, but <clears throat> his wife, Stacy was dragging this enormous, enormous clothes bag down the hall. I was like, Jesus, that looks like clothes for like two weeks or three weeks. That is a lot of laundry. She goes, oh, well, you know, Greg sweats through like four shirts a night. I was like, what? She's like, oh, honey, he gets so nervous. I was like, really? After all these gigs? She goes, honey, he'll sweat through one shirt on the way to the gig. And then he'll go through one on at, on stage. Then he'll change. That's number three. Then he'll put on another one after the gig. To And I was like, wow, I thought I got nervous. You know? Amazing. And, uh, but he told me, so I talked to him about it. And he said, man, if it didn't happen, I'd be worried. And I think what it does is it's a, it goes back to a thing that Colonel Bruce was adamant about. He said, I want you to play like there's a loaded gun up your ass and someone hostile with their finger on the trigger, like do it right. Or it's, you know what I mean? He just like, he wanted that urgency and that nervousness is that. And Greg was like, if I don't have that, it's almost like go, ah, you know, and you just, <laughs> it just comes out, you know? And it's something about that thing that people can feel that, you know, yeah. it's electrical. I mean, I see the Allman Brothers a million times with, with you in it. When I, I, I'm from New York, so we used to go to the Beacon shows all the time. And, you know, every, it was like a, every night was amazing. You know, there's just like the energy was there. It was never like, oh, it's the same old shit, like, you know, tired gig. It never felt like that. It was always a lot of energy. It was loud. It was like, you know, it was just badass, you know. Yeah. It was amazing, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if gigs get if they don't become like that when when it's not like that, I uh, I quit. You just gotta you can't let music become a job. Like whatever, man. That's not we. I went through too much stuff, man, for it to be like that. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah. So was you don't know your your days are not guaranteed. I I had this thought a lot. Like everybody in my life that died, I think, including my brother. You think back to the last gig, it's like, what if someone told you that's the last gig you were ever going to play with them? So what if, what if it's my last gig? I don't know, for real. So people ask me, how do you like have such a good time? I'm like, man, it might be the last one. You know, that happiness is also a decision, not just a feeling, you know. Have uh, two months to live and you'll find that out, you know. No, you're absolutely right, man. You know, so when you were with the Allman Brothers, was that like your first real, real payday? Like, was that like? Yeah. Woo. Yeah. One story that you told, I read somewhere that like, you know, you were flying out to the gig. I still were flying you out to Boston. I don't know if that was the the deal. They're like, hey, you know, do you want like a window seat or an aisle seat? And you're like, I don't care, man. I just don't want a middle seat. And you're like, well, they're like, there's O'Teal, there's no middle seat in first class. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> I like put my hand over the phone to my ex-wife. I was like. I'm flying first class. What? Like, that's when I knew it was getting serious, you know? I was like, oh, what, a meal preference? What the hell <laughs> is that? You know, like, okay. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was definitely, but I knew it. I knew I was stepping into that next level because I'd seen friends of mine, you know, Dave Matthews' band opened for the Aquarium Rescue Unit one time. You know? So I watched these guys go, and I remember my ex-wife's family before we ever got married, they were like, well, what if music doesn't work out? I was like, there is no not working out. Like, all my eggs are in this basket. Right. 
it hasn't been working out for like 11 years now, however long it had been at that point. I said, but just so you understand, I've watched friends of mine go from being at the same point that I'm at to being millionaires. So it can happen. And the only way it can't happen is if I stop doing it. So when it does happen, I need to be there when it does. This is it. This is who I am. This is all I'm ever going to do. I've never been to school. I don't know how to do anything else. It's this or McDonald's, and I ain't going to be a McDonald's. So, mm -hmm. no. And then, you know, I was that was that conversation was when I was 28. At 32, I got the Allman Brothers gig. And you got to remember, I'm living in Birmingham, Alabama. So the Allman Brothers band, they're like God, <laughs> you know? So I just went, bam, straight to the top. And I was like, see, <laughs> you know, and they're like, okay, okay. You know, it was crazy. We got the newspaper article from Birmingham. I still have it. When I got the gig, I laminated it just in, for the kids or whatever. Yeah, of course, man. That's a huge <laughs> one. So, you know, one of my, I got to say, so during this quarantine period, like when we're home, like I'm like, I saw I'm obsessed with music and, you know, yeah, I, I know you quit drinking, but you know, I, I'm, I'm still going strong. <laughs> so we would be home. I, I, I drink, you know, I have a little bit, just not my former glory. <laughs> so, you know, we'd be, you know, my wife and I would open up a bottle of wine or whatever. And like, you know, we'd drink some wine and then everyone would go to sleep. But, you know, I just couldn't, I, I would stay up. So my buddy and I, who's also a guy who went, I've known since I was like seven, 12 years old. Like we were, we were like best friends in the world. We love both are obsessed with music. So we'd send each other like YouTube videos. Of what are we watching? We'd be like three in the morning. Like, what are you watching? What are you watching? So I w literally became obsessed with Tedeschi Trucks Band. Um, yeah. Like so, I mean, God, like Midnight in Harlem, all those tunes. Like, they really, I could watch it a million times. And in fact, even now, before I go to bed, I'll pop in my AirPods and I'll watch some of those YouTube videos. Um, and it just, like, it really just hits you right here. First of all, her voice is like, oh my God, it's incredible. And then obviously, Derek Trucks and you're playing your brothers in a lot of those videos. Um, you know, those you got two Grammys with those guys too. I think, right? Yeah, with the uh, I got one. I I think they got another one. Maybe after I left, I'm not sure. My brother, or I think they got one before Tedeschi Trucks Band with Derek Trucks Band. Okay. No, my brother had two or three. No, I think he had two, and I had two. I can't remember. But losing track of the Grammys—that's a quality problem, right? <laughs> Tell me about like that. I mean, that to me has got to be one of the most soulful bands, man. I mean, it's just amazing. You know, even like, I don't, you weren't with them, but that the Tiny Desk concert with them, you know, that NPR. Yeah, after desk. I left. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's just such a soulful band. The backup singers are soulful, like, you know, organ is soulful. Like, yeah, it's just such an amazing group. Talk to me about, because you were part of the inception of that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's me and Kofi, we were founding members, yeah. And it was just a thing of like, you know, Susan had her band and Derek had his band. I, you know, I was like, guys, come on, you know, like, but they all had, you know, their individual band members. They didn't want to put people out of work and stuff, you know. Right. And, uh, but at a certain point, they um, decided to do it, you know. And me and Kofi hadn't played together in many years, not like every night, all night. You know, we had played together, like jammed and stuff, but and recorded, but we hadn't <clears throat> we hadn't like been in a band together for geez, how many years? Like eleven or something? I don't know. I don't I'm 
know exactly. It was a long time. So, um, but you know, Derek and Susan are both like super uh, steeped and coming out of that blues tradition, you know. So it's all, all the old black music, blues, gospel, R&B, funk, all that stuff, you know. And then Derek added in the um, <clears throat> classical Indian stuff too, you know. Yeah, yeah. Kowali, uh, yeah. Pakistani. Yeah, totally. You know, um, Nusra Ali Khan. Those guys. Where he's yeah, playing like Raga stuff. Yeah. yeah. So that's that, that, you know, those that was always the roots of it. Same with Almond Brothers Band. It just comes out of the South. Yeah. All that stuff, you know, all yeah. the, uh, and um, so this was like our, our rendition of Almond Brothers and, you know, all the stuff that came before us, all our heroes, you know. It's be, it beautiful stuff, man. Yeah. So we, we put a lot of hardcore funk in there, but, you know, with me and Kofi, like yeah. it's just it's gonna happen and you know with jj and falcon like you just can't have you know if you put certain people together it's gonna have it can't help yeah. it <laughs> you know? and, and you and derek were still with the allman brothers right so it was just like when you guys were not touring with the allman brothers <laughs> yeah there was an overlap there there was an over and the allman brothers had scaled down and we're only doing probably about 20 dates a year like he right. does when you get to that when you get in your 70s you don't want to do a you know 60 100 dates a year anymore yeah. and uh so that was, for me personally, I, I really was hoping that we would do like 20 dates with the Allman Brothers and 20 with Tedeschi Trucks Band and then stay home the rest of the time and like actually have a family life. Because I was like done with clubs and the drinking and the blah, blah, blah. I was like, wow, I don't want to be on the road all the time. And I was at that point, we were still trying to get pregnant, me and my wife. Mm -hmm. And that ended up being why I was leaving because I was like, just like, this is, I can't even catch her ovulations. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not even going to be able to make this kid being on the road. You know, it's a, it was a big risk. A lot of people thought I was insane because the Almond Brothers was ending and everybody knew it. And I just was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I got to figure out. I'll never forget. Uh, I got this fortune cookie. It said, your best investment is in yourself. And I taped it with a peach of Scott's tape to one of my Grammys <laughs> because I, I had to remind myself, like, you have to take these risks. You've taken them before. It's just the stakes are higher every time. And so when the Almond Brothers did end, I was kind of freaking out, but I was on my own and I was hustling. They ended when Jess was six months pregnant. And uh, exactly a year later, I got the Dead & Company gig amazing so, uh nigel was four months old and um we were flying out to california to do rehearsals and i was like thank you god thank you universe for you know rewarding me taking this insane risk you know and i ended up playing bigger places and making way more money than i ever made and it was like i was <laughs> the opposite of what it's just like what colonel bruce said like what you're perception of yourself is is this and what you the potential for what you really are is limitless so i took that risk again and then bam and now it's like i have people literally i'm driving down the street and people in the car next to me like yeah I'm like, oh, that didn't happen with the almond brothers you know i mean it's just like 
the universe will never cease to surprise you or God or however you look at it. I'm comfortable with God and mystical stuff. So I just, I'm, I know the universe has my back, but you have to trust. Absolutely. <laughs> You've got to take that risk. And there's some kind of universal law that makes you, um, makes it matter. It, it, it makes it matter when you put your eggs in that basket or you roll those dice. Cause that's, you know, I'm rolling the dice for my son, my wife, now a daughter that I adopted, you know, it's so, but I still roll them, you know, cause I know your best investment is in yourself. I, I love all that OTL. And I think that's just all, it's just so true. I mean, it speaks to who you are, man. You, you gotta you, and what you were saying earlier. Like if you're not like when you were talking to I guess, your future in-laws, if, if you're not in the game, you're not going anywhere, you know, like, you know, you, you got to be in the game to, to get to the next level. You have to believe in yourself. You have to take risks like you did. And all, every risk you've taken has paid off because you're open to the universe, you know, and because, you know, you're obviously you are who you are and you're always working. You're always owning your craft and learning new material and doing whatever you need to do, but you're open to do that. Um, I just a few things I gotta ask you about, man. Before before I let you, I know I know I'm keeping you here for a long time, and I apologize. Oh man, we do podcasts for like I listen to like three hour podcasts. <laughs> I don't have anything going today, really. Awesome, I love that because you know I could talk to you forever. But um, so Joe Russo, you know the drummer, he yeah. was playing with Phil Lesh and Bob Weir on a gig, and he said he had one earpiece listening to you know Phil was talking to him, and he had another earpiece with what Bobby was telling him, and you know Phil is like. Speed up, speed up, speed up, speed up. And Bobby's like, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. And he's basically just looking at them both and nodding. Um, but, you know, you had a similar story when you were with the Oliver Brothers. And, like, Dickie Betts is like, let's go. You know, he wanted to take the jams to, like, this crazy elevated, you know, abstract place. And Greg Oldman was like, just fucking play the beat, man. Let's just stay 4-4. Let's just play it straight. You know, can you, can you, tell, can you share a little bit of that story? Well, this is a great lesson that I think people have to learn. And, uh... <clears throat> It's about creative tension. <laughs> I mean, it happens in Den Company, you know? You can't get, you know, and these are democratic situations. You know, it's not like Greg Allman and Friends, which he had, his band, and that's how he did it. He's like, why do we always have to have long jams? You know, in his band, they didn't have the long jams. You know, he was like, can we keep this to 16 bars, you know? I'm like, why are you asking me? It's the Almond Brothers. That's what you guys are famous for, you know? So you would have one guy telling you one thing, other guy telling you the exact opposite. And you're just like, what do I do here? And it's a great lesson in creative tension because, you know, without that tension, you don't have, like, I think of it in terms of sex. Like, an orgasm is creative tension. Without the tension... There's not the orgasm. And then after that, you have a new life created, right? So you take the tension away. There's no sex. There's, de there's not even sex, much less an orgasm. So there's no life. So you have to accept that, you know, the yin-yang symbol, the Tao, all that stuff. So, you know, God and the devil, you know what I mean? Like it's, <clears throat> you can't, you can't have one without the other. That's the universal law. One defines the other. You know, so I accept it now because without it, you have nothing. Right. Right. And it, it's right. funny because these right. guys are almost like cursed to be with each other because if they go out separately, it doesn't it doesn't happen the same. And, and everybody knows. And that, that's why nobody not as many people come to see it. 
But then when that thing happens, you know, you get that all that tension back together, everybody's like, <laughs> it's so funny. You cannot escape it. So you have to be able to, hopefully, you could, I think bands could do therapy. I think younger bands are doing that right now. <clears throat> you deal with that in marriage. You deal with that with your kids. Like, I love my kids. I want to kill them sometimes. Like, what are you doing? Jeez. You're trying, to, like you're trying to make me mad at you. You know, I mean, they're doing it on purpose. But then, you yeah. know, they'll do something else. And you're just like, your, your love for them is so much bigger than all that. But you have to live with that. It's harder than right. anything you could ever. All the cliches are so friggin' true, man. So much harder than you can. People just can't imagine. How you describe being sleep deprived for like four years? You know, like, I can't. <laughs> Maybe some prisoners of war, no way. You know, like, it's another thing, but I, you just have to accept it. That's our human condition and learn from whatever we're supposed to learn from that particular situation, even if you have to get out of it. Like, at some points, it could become diminishing returns or act, destructive. Uh, to you, to yeah, you. destructive to you. Yeah. And then you got to be. So I just, I think there was one particular situation where this whole thing came to a head. You guys, I think you guys are gonna be playing like Elizabeth Reed or something like that, and like you know, they get their jam went on like forever. And then I think at like the end of the gig, like Greg Allman came out and said, "Who, which one of you guys is listening to Fish <laughs> or something like that?" Right? Oh, was it the Mountain Jam? Where I see that's what happened was after Dickie left, um, they called Jimmy Hearing, and. Uh, it was really hard for Jimmy, too, because I'm glad he ended up going with Phil Lesh because Jerry had passed away. So we were replacing someone had passed away. You know, there might be, you know, this, but it's not like to the level that it is when that person's still alive, like Dickie Betts. And so there would literally be people that would come that would normally stand in front of Dickie and stand in front of where Jimmy was and turn their backs to the stage in protest. Yeah. So that shit was brutal, man. Well, anyway, you know, Derek had played with Colonel Bruce in the Aquarium Rescue, and he had sat in with us a bunch of time. And, you know, Bruce was out. We'd go way out, do our Sun Ra thing, you know. Just, um, <clears throat> and Dwayne loved that. You know, Dwayne and Dick Dickie loved the Colonel, and they loved all his weird shit. And Dwayne is the one that got him his first record deal on Capricorn Records, which is I... what the Almond Brothers were on. But Phil Walden sold that to Columbia Records, sold it to Clive Davis. And so it came out on Columbia. But Dwayne's the one that did that, right? So <laughs> um, we start going out, man, on stage. Like during Mountain Jam, because Mountain Jam was one of those long, it's just a jam. It's not really a song. Like it was a Donovan song, but it was just a jam, a vehicle to like, Go do something you didn't do before. And in the old days, it used to go out like that, like way out there sometimes. And just like the dead did. And so, you know, we're on the bus reminiscing about the Colonel. Me, Derek, and Jimmy are all riding together. So Mountain Jam comes and we just go out there, man. And Greg did not like that shit, man. We got back on the bus and, you know, he would always go to the back of the bus that the older guys would take the back lounge. He had a bedroom set up in there, and he comes up. He goes, "All right, who's the fish fan?" And we're like, <laughs> "No." And so I was like, "Oh, he's talking about Mountain Jam." 
and I was like, oh, Greg, um, you talking about Mountain Jam? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's what, 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 what y'all doing there? I said, well, that really comes more from like Sun Ra or Colonel Bruce, you know, than Fish. But yeah, sorry. He goes, well, whatever it was, please don't ever do that again. And so then he goes back in the back clouds. Me and Derek are laughing because, you know, I'm like, it's not that bad. He'll get away, whatever. But Jimmy is mortified. He's crushed. He's like, oh, my God, that this is hero. You know, and I just totally pissed him. It said, don't ever do that again. That's like the last thing you want to hear from your hero. <laughs> so we're like trying to console him. He's like, oh, man. And we're like, dude, it's fine. It's okay. Like, don't, don't sweat. So Greg comes back out later. I don't know how much longer. Maybe 30 minutes or something. Whatever. He goes, you know what, man? I'm sorry. He goes, this is your band, too. He goes, I don't understand that shit, but, you know. Dwayne used to love that shit too, man. He used to do that same shit. So, you know, whatever. Y'all, it's y'all's band too. If, if you really are feeling that, it's, oh, you know, he goes back in the lounge and I was like, wow. That's amazing. What a beautiful moment. To, and Jimmy's like super relieved. You know? wow. We're like, see, man, it's cool. You know, but I was really, really, uh, really surprised. And uh, please, you know, it was an amazing moment. That is an amazing moment, yeah. man. So let's, let's let's fast forward a little bit now to like present present day stuff. So you know, t- tell me. So I've been to a bunch of Dead and Co shows, uh, all amazing. I went to the first one at City Field. I've been to everyone at City Field actually. I, I've been seeing you guys at the Garden. Um, incredible, incredible band. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. And it's so great for me as someone who went to so many dead shows and not having seen a dead show since 1995. I was actually in San Francisco in 1995 when Jerry had passed away, actually, just serendipitously, which was crazy. Um, uh, but so, so it was great to be able to see, you know, like a dead band actually playing again. When you get that call, so, you know, you get that call. You, you, know, you were, you, like you said, you'd heard the dead songs and stuff, but you weren't really, you didn't know of the tunes really. It was nothing you really ever did. You get that call, and it's like a mega band at this point. You know, it's like, you know, okay, so obviously the existing members of Grateful Dead, like, you know, most successful touring band in the history of the world, you know, played more shows and, you know, made more money touring than, like, you know, they're, like, bigger than the fucking Rolling Stones, you know, in terms of their tour money revenue. And then, like, John Mayer, who is, like, just a rock and roll, you know, he's, I mean, he's a fucking rock star, you know? He's, like, a, yeah. a, a huge fit. So how does that work? Like, who calls you? Who says, hey, O'Teal, we need a bass player. We're putting this project together. Like, how does that all work? That um, that particular call came from Matt Bush, who is like Bob's personal road manager. And uh, <clears throat> he also like makes the set list and stuff. He's a super like dead historian, really. And uh, so I got a call from Burt Holman, who's the Allman Brothers manager, <clears throat> who... We, you know, we knew Matt Bush from when he used to work with Government Mule. So I've known mm-hmm. Matt for many years. And he goes, hey, man, Bush has called me, uh, want your number, said Bob Weir wants it. I was like, really? I was like, all right, because Grateful Dead 50 was coming up. Mm-hmm. So it was a big deal. You know, like you're just hearing all this talk about Grateful Dead, everything. It's a huge resurgence, you know. And uh, I was like, sweet. Field shows, right? The Soldier Field shows? 
Yes, before Grateful, but it started in Santa Clara and then they did Chicago, right? And um, so I'm like, well, maybe they're talking about going on, you know? So then I hear the rumors. Yeah, they're talking to John Mayer and they're talking about going on after um, Grateful Dead 50 and Phil retires from the band. And I was like, oh, please, please, yes, please. I got a four-month-old, please. I've been hustling my ass off. Talk about the grind, dude. I was doing, just remind me in case I lose my train of thought. Uh, I was in that year period, I was doing all these super jams. So, and, and New Orleans Jazz Fest was the king because I'd be there for like 10 days and I'd have 13 gigs. So I'd learn a set list for someone that was like 20 songs, go play that, not play it anymore, go to another gig that I had learned 20 songs for it put that behind me, go to a third gig, same night, starts at like three in the morning, right? So I've learned in all these songs, man, did I so much, it was like sucking on a fire hydrant. And uh, it was perfect because it prepared me for learning all these Grateful Dead tunes. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. great. So I talk about a grind. Oh, it's fucking grinding it. But, uh, you know, I had a four month old. So I, I get this call and uh, they're like, yeah, you know, we're doing this thing. And, uh, you know, we want you to come out and play. There's there's other bass players being looked at, but you're like literally in the top two. So I was like, great. I didn't know who the other ones were. So me and my wife are like, yeah, come on, let's do this, you know. And then we get, uh, we go down to New Orleans at Next Jazz Fest. And we see that um, all these pictures with Mike Gordon came out with mayor and bob and bill and mickey and Kamenti at tri and so now the word is on the street mike gordon's the bass player for the new band with mayor and my wife is just i see all the blood draining out of her face i'm like honey i'm sorry but you know fish bigger than the almond brothers and it's just that's how it goes you know like uh you know and mike knew all the dead tunes i didn't know all that stuff you know again i don't have is that like a also, you know, he has with... Phil's exact rig replicated, you know, he's worked with, like, you know, it's just, I was like, honey, I'm sorry. I said, but, you know, I told her this thing, it's, it's like a, one of these laws of the universe, and she's seen it happen a number of times with me. Um, I said, if that gig is meant for me, nothing can stop it. And I don't want anything bad to happen to Mike, but I know if it's meant for me, nothing can stop it. And if it's not meant for me, we don't want it. So it, it may look like the worst thing happened. And years later, it'll be like, that's why I wasn't supposed to get. Thank you for closing that door, right? So we went on about that jazz fest. Oh, man, we were so let down. Damn, we were so let down. But we roll on two months later or so, or however much later, I get a call from Matt Bush again. It says, you're up. I was like, what do you mean I'm up? He said, Mike can't commit. They want him to commit these chunks of time. And between Fish and his solo band, he can't commit. And his, he's not willing to like sacrifice his solo band or any time with Fish to do it. And I was just like, and that, now this is the second or third time with my wife. I was like, see, honey, <laughs> if it's not, if it's my, if it's meant for me, nothing can stop it. So. Then we got that gig, and and Bill flew us out to Santa Clara to that first 
show that they had. And we hadn't been away from Nigel ever at that point. And my wife was too nervous to stay for the second night. She was like, I can't be that so far away. Without rehearsing with a band? No, I went to see Griffo just before we ever did a rehearsal. Okay, okay, gotcha. And um, Bill flew me out there just to see it. And the funny thing was, me and my wife were standing. I have the pictures. I'm like, God, I can almost cry. Um, we were standing there looking at because we'd never played places this big with the Almond Brothers. And, I mean, it's just, like, enormous. That's crazy. The amount of people and the energy. You know, a dead show, man. It's a Grateful Dead fit, too. The energy was, like, off the scale. And I was, like, I still didn't have the gig yet. But, you know, I'm, like, up. They, they wanted me to come out and play with them. Like, we got to see, does it work first, right? So that you played with them then when you went out there? That was, like, the kind that of... That was afterwards. It was afterwards. They just built... So you just wanted to look at the venue? Yeah, Bill just wanted to fly me out and catch the vibe. Like, you know, welcome to the fit. Like, this could be your life. You know, if this all works, this will be your life, you know? So I was like, Jess, can you picture this for us? And she's like, I'm trying to, man, but I seriously can't. I was like, I can't either. Like, it literally has exceeded. Even though I'm looking at it, I still am like, I can't. This is what Colonel Bruce was talking about, man. Yeah. What you think is here yeah. and what may be meant for you is past what you can conceive of. And now I'm looking at it being told this is most likely going to be your life. And I still can't believe it. And neither can my wife. And she's been all around with the Almond Brothers. She's done it. She's been to the Grammys with me. And we were, been we are now I'm a two time Grammy winner. She'd seen all this. She's just still like, I don't know, man. This is crazy. And then I never forget, we were at City Field or somewhere, and I'm, st I'm sitting there with her, and I'm like, look, now this feels like home. Isn't this weird? Remember that day and the rainbow came out? Remember? I was, I was I, at that show, man. Yeah. I just was like, beyond fairy tale. Uh, that's Colonel Bruce. Beyond fairy tale. That's yeah. when you know, and that's what life has for you. I mean, when you see your kid's head pop out, come on, man. I'm like, everybody should know you get miracles here. You get them. Yeah. Don't let nobody tell you you don't get them. You get yeah, them. Right. In the mirror. How does all this work? This design. It's miraculous. Consciousness <laughs> or that we love and have a conscience. Like, what's that? That I could feel so bad about something? Like, why does it matter? Like, you know, so many things, you know. I just, I don't know, man. So let's, you know, let's I I want to kind of dive into the logistics of how all this shit goes down though. If you don't mind me just like picking your brain and like, you know. Sure. So so tell me about like the first time you jammed like with the dead. Like, you know, what, what how does that work? Like, okay, here, we're going to play these three songs, just learn them and then we're going to see how it works. So like how does that all go yeah, down? Here's what I did. I uh they gave me Mayor's number. So did I you, literally You guys like uh, Were you guys friends before? Do you guys know each other at all? Oh, no. Uh -uh. We knew people in common. Like, I have a dear friend, David Ryan Harris, that plays with him. And then the drummer in um, TTB, J.J. Johnson, had played with Mayer before, but I had never met him and had no interaction with him. And um, so I called him or texted or whatever. And, you know, it's it's such a big catalog, catalog, excuse me, that I just put dead CDs on or YouTubes of uh, shows, 
And then when I liked a song, I would just write it down. And so I just learned all my favorite songs, you know, and then I just kept going till I got up to about 50 songs and, uh, or f 40 or 50, I think. And, um, and so I texted Mayor and I was like, well, which let's at least put together which ones I want to learn which ones, you know, that I don't know. So that when we get there, at least we could say, both of us could say, oh, well, we both know this one, or we both know this one, that one. And we had, a, had learned a lot of the same ones in common. Mm -hmm. And um, and then- So was he auditioning too at that point? Was he auditioning also, or was he- Oh, already... no, he had, he was, he's been a partner in it from the beginning, because he was playing a lot of these places that we started out playing by himself. Okay. So, yeah, he had the gig. It was me that, you know, so I was- um. And th there was another guy, a uh, really great bass player. I think his name is Robin Sylvester, a British cat that plays with Bob a lot. And they had him come in too. And Bob was like, you know, the gig's basically yours, but we're playing with him too. Like if you break your leg, we got to know we can get him in like immediately and the show will go. I'm like, sure, fine. And, you know, and, and I'm sure if it didn't gel with me, then he probably would have got the gig. You know, but they're like, you know, don't freak out, whatever, you know. So we come in and we, we you know, me and John told them, hey, th these are all the songs that both of us know. So that we could just start going down the list, you know. So we just start doing it, picking out vocal harmonies. It's a very like Rubik's Cube kind of process. I was very like, you know, it's so weird when you're filling someone else's shoes. Um, and, you, you know, they've played with this person for so long, you know, and you want to do it right. And you just know it can't be the same. But their whole thing is right. like, we don't want it to be the same. It's not supposed to. Be, even if we do it with you every night, we want it to be different, you know. So let go of that. And it's a very Colonel Bruce, like, fortunately, that and the Allman Brothers had that same thing. They're like, no. You know what the record is? Like when it's the verse and the chorus, you play it like the record. When it comes to the jam, you jam. But with the with the dead, it's even more amorphous because Phil changes his parts and the verses and choruses of some songs over the decades. Like it morphs. And so it's, you know, and I just like, I can't, I can't play like him. And I don't know. I was like, I just don't know. I feel like I'm not always unsure. And Bob, he, he said to me, he goes, O'Teal, just play it black. You're black, just play it black. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, shit, that I can do easily. Because, <laughs> you know, and then I started to realize how much black influence there is in their catalog. Like, tons. I would say almost most of it. Like, if you yeah. took all the black, and we did this over the when, during the George Floyd process, we were like, I, if we actually to continue to do the actual uh, survey or whatever, like take every black influence song out of the set list and see how many songs there are left. So I always say that I won people's asses over before I won their ears over because in all those tunes, I just groove it as hard as I can. So people are just like, they're like, oh my God, this is great. And uh, so it worked out, I think, for that reason. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes, you know, friends. Another Colonel Bruce line uh, where Jared told me he's like, they would be watching like some show, and, and Colonel Bruce would be like, "All right, let's get out of here." And Jared's like, "What are you talking about? Man? What's going on here?" He's like, "He's like too much head, not enough ass." 
Like, yeah. we gotta go, you know. Um, so is Bobby kind of like a Colonel Bruce type of guy? He seems like kind of like a Colonel Brucey type of guy, you know. Sort of All a, those guys are very mystical in their own way because their whole yeah. path was completely dependent upon the unknown. And I have seriously never met people so willing to take a completely insane chance. And the way they do it is like, oh, that sounds like a good, and you see them get like this and they're like, ah, big risk. Ooh. You know, it's like, it's, it's very uh, childlike and beautiful. Not, not childish at all. I mean, they know from years of like everything we've done has like, it just, that's our thing. If we don't take chances, it doesn't come up roses. That's how we make gold by taking, by not playing it safe. It's really yeah. crazy. And they all have it to a certain extent. I think Jerry was probably the most, probably the most like the Colonel though, you know, you know, it's interesting that you say that because uh, I was actually going to say this. You know, it's about being open-minded. And, you know, a lot of times, like, when I'm working out or, or whatever, I, like, watch, like, whatever, old, old Jerry stuff. And I, I came upon this interview with Jerry. It was, like, for Relics Magazine or something like that. But for, like, from, like, the, like, late 80s or something like that, you know? And he's being interviewed on a video, actually, which was pretty cool. And, you know, he talks a lot about, like, you know, when they're doing, like, the acid tests and all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, and they would play these gigs. And it, and it, you know, really the way he was such an articulate guy. First of all, you know, when you would hear him speak, and like, really, I'm obviously like a brilliant human, you know. And he was able, kind of very, very much like the way Jared is so able to articulate things. Like he was very, he was able to just sort of articulate his thoughts in in such a way that it was just so clear. Like it was just you just understood. Ah, okay, I get it now. And it was about that open mindedness, that willingness to take risks and put yourself in an uncomfortable situation, being uncomfortable, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, and like you know, because that's where the magic happens. Yeah, you it might really suck 80% of the time and yeah. you but there's like 20% of the time it's magical and it really then you're like you once you've attained that you know he talks about like acid was kind of like that once you once you've attained that and you've experienced that it like opens up a whole new realm of life like oh wow you know life could really be like that like you know there's this whole nother layer to life to the universe you know and yeah. uh yeah, it's, it's kind of like what you're describing here you know also the, the stuff he said with, with Colonel Bruce and it's a beautiful life lesson too, man. I mean, just outside of music, like it really can. I love, man. I when I, you know, I've read, uh, I've read Bill's book. I've read Phil's book. I watched all these interviews. There's a documentary they did on Bob Weir. I watched all the Jerry interviews I could find. Like I really, and you got that sense. Like he, there, there's a an attitude towards life that's openness and a curiosity and a humility that uh, I just see a lot with Jerry that, you know, I saw with the Colonel too. They're, they're different. They're really different guys, but it's just a, a, a attitude of being a way of being that I, I see a lot of similarities in and it, and, and that goes for everybody in the band, you know, Really, it really does. Uh, the, I you you can see it just as a fan, you know, just as a fan, you know, you can you can really see it. And and from year to year, it's just gotten like better and better, you know, like just the gel. Everyone just it just gels so much more. There's there's two two things, man, that I just want to touch on before I let you go. One is you, you had like a it's such a beautiful comment um, in one of these interviews that I was reading 
And it was about like you singing with the dead. And I remember I was at a show. I was at, it was, it was, I think it was one of the Shea Stadium shows. And you sung, I think you sung Comes a Time. I can't remember. Yeah. I think that's what it was. And like the minute you like opened up your voice, like the crowd just went berserk, like crazy, you know, like just like, nuts. And uh, you, you had this great line. Like you were, actually, I wrote it down. You said, you said the best days of your life are always ahead of you not behind you. Yeah. And I thought that was just so revealing because, you know, a lot of folks would say, yeah, just like, you know, it's, it goes back to that Colonel Bruce comment, you know, like it's all about, you know, there's endless potential and you don't even know what your potential is. Like, you know, like you were never like a lead singer in a band, you know, like, and I mean, even when I sung in my band, you know, my old lead singer started drinking again and so he had a bad problem with it and I had to let him go and I took over the singing. I was like, you're a way better singer than I am, but I can sing this gig better than you right now because my voice doesn't burn out. Like I just right. make it to the end of the gig. So, but at that point I was, I didn't have inner ear monitors. So you're always trying to scream over the band and I wasn't a singer. So I wasn't using the right singing technique, you know? So you fast forward to the, uh, to dead and company and i have these inner ear monitors because we're playing so soft <clears throat> you know i need to like crank my bass up in my ear so i can hear it and i realized i could hit much higher notes in tune than i could before from singing because they were giving me all these high parts <laughs> and um i was like wow maybe i can sing better than I thought and my old voice teacher that I got when I had to take over singing map she was like you have a beautiful voice I was like God, I hate my voice I just got to do this because we got all these gigs but she was like you really should not be so hard on yourself you know and I it's still it's hard for me to listen to the older stuff you know but then when I started singing with this band I couldn't hear the audience in my ears because I didn't have the audience in my ears I just had the band so I got off stage and I was like was that okay to ask my wife? I was like, is that okay? She was like, do you not hear the crowd? Like when you just walk up to the mic before you even open your mouth? And I was like, no. So I started getting the crowd in my ears. And I walk up to the mic and I was like, oh, shit. now it's going to throw me off. And I'm about to tear. I'm like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And of course, the first thought is Colonel Bruce. Your conception of yourself is this big. If someone had told you about, oh, you're going to be singing lead at stadiums and, you know, crushing it with, with John Mayer on stage, no less. A guy that's made so much millions, like singing, like real singers, you know, like, and I, was like I would have been like, whoever your dealer is, I want their number because I want whatever you're on, you know. Um, <laughs> and it just the, the more my life unfolds, everything that that the colonel told me just proves to be truer and truer and truer to that now i'm like i don't know i who knows i may become a millionaire one day i don't know i might be a billionaire like, i don't even know i don't care about you know that's not my aim in life but i just know like i'm not limiting myself to anything there's no ceiling that's my only dogma in my life is no ceiling and don't think your best days are behind you, you know? i love that line man i love that line i love that i I mean, I don't think there's a better place to close this interview, man. I mean, Otiel, this was amazing. You know, I really, I think there's just so many powerful lessons in this for, for all. 
thank you friend you know you're just a beautiful human it's just so obvious and you know i, I appreciate it i'm trying to be i was a really shitty human before and i'm you know i think that's the key with life is just that you're trying to get better you know like you don't you don't have to be the best but you at least got to be trying to get better you know and i am trying have good reasons to now so thank you i appreciate it i don't feel like a good person because i know all my past <laughs> you know but i've refused to be my past too That's so a... we can't be limited we can't like drag all that into now we gotta let it go and forgive ourselves and you know and try this thing anew the sun comes up new every day so that's right, my man. Well, I'm I'm leaving this interview quite inspired, man. That's that's it's. Uh... Man, I'm glad. That's what I hope for more than anything, even more than music, man. Honestly, I really feel like this pandemic and and our podcast that I'm doing, the Comes a Time podcast, a quick plug, um, and I think that really is like, like raising my children and and being a good husband this time with my wife, and um, trying to communicate these things to people. Because I've buried people that didn't get this, you know, and you only get some things later on in life. And I think it really is more important to me that I reach people with this stuff than the music. So thank you, because it really means a lot to me. Well, you're doing it with both, my man. Thanks again. I really love you, thank man. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Mudgill Podcast. The corresponding video can be found on YouTube, IGTV, and Facebook. Let's get it.